Hi, hi everybody. Uh, welcome to the Trist um, at Hillhead Baptist Church. My name is Brian. I'm a member of this church, and this is part of the, uh, all the festival events that we're organising for this year. If you, uh, you may already know what they all are, but if you don't, there's a wee leaflet on each of the tables to let you know about all the other events, including uh, the additional Philosophy Cafe next Sunday, uh, where Robin Marsk is going to be coming speaking about poetry. So, um, a great welcome here today, especially if you've come from afar. One or two housekeeping announcements. Uh, first of all, um, the fire exits are the door you came in and this door here. And if there's any emergency, um, then stewards who are wearing fluorescent yellow badges will help you to exits. The toilets are back out that door. Uh, ladies and gents to the right and an accessible toilet straight ahead. Uh, so they're very handy. The uh, format of this afternoon is the same as it always is for a philosophy cafe. Um, our speaker will introduce the topic, um, uh, enlighten us, enrage us, excite us, inform us, um, excite us, whatever. Um, and then we'll have a break for about 10 minutes um, while you can replenish your tea and coffee or get something more to eat uh, and go to the loo, whatever. And then we'll come back together again about 20 to 2 and then there'll be a chance for conversation, questions, discussion, debate, whatever. Uh, as always, I promise we will finish absolutely sharp at half past two because I know that some of you will have other festival events to go to and we will not keep you back from that. Mark Lambert earned a master's degree in history from Edinburgh University. He then became a merchant banker, obvious thing to do, uh, before quickly realising that literature was far more interesting. He worked for Britain's leading bookseller, Waterstone & Co., as a, the main fiction buyer, then for Penguin Books in Italy and the UK. After four years of writing about and interpreting contemporary art uh, at the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh, he joined the Edinburgh International Book Festival, becoming assistant director. For the last ten years, he has held the position of chief executive of the Scottish Book Trust, Scotland's national agency for the promotion of reading and writing. Mark has also worked, as some of you will know, as an editor in volumes of poetry and Scottish writing, and he writes book reviews and comments on literary issues. Some of you will be familiar with Mark's thinking about how we can give our children the very best start in learning to read and write. In his essay in the Sunday Herald in April, uh, the subheading ran, Until the age of six or seven, kids should be playing, not working. So why are we teaching literacy skills for five-year-olds? Today, Mark ups the ante with his topic, provocative topic, which is education as punishment. Please give a warm West End Festival welcome to Mark Lambert. Thank you very much indeed, Brian. I'm delighted to be here today. Um, and hopefully what I'm going to say will provide uh, much um, opportunity for uh, controversy and discussion uh, later on. So, education as punishment. I've got about 25 minutes. Today I'm going to talk about education, punishment, and play, of course. My talk is divided into two sections. The first will deal primarily with the history of ideas as it pertains to attitudes towards knowledge, access to knowledge, and the acquisition of knowledge. The reason I want to explore this topic is that I hope to show how, right from the very beginning, ideas about education and punishment are indissolubly entwined and how this drama of knowledge is still being played out in our thoughts about how we educate, 
albeit in altered and more modern forms. I call it the drama of knowledge because drama is characterized by tension and opposition, and in exploring ideas about education and punishment, that's certainly what we find. In the second section of my talk, I'll move on to give a short report on what's happening in education today in Scotland, comparing it with other educational strategies and exemplars, finishing off by suggesting how we can rethink our ideas about education to get better results. And this is where the concept of play and its relation to learning comes in. So let's start with this history of ideas, but with a caveat. My time is short and I'll be covering many millennia of human activity, jumping backwards and forwards through time. So my approach will necessarily be impressionistic. I'm going to follow various streams of thought as they ebb and flow through many centuries of culture. From the very beginnings of recorded memory, knowledge is twinned with prohibition. The first instance of writing that we find, clay tablets from Mesopotamia, end with this warning. Let the wise instruct the wise, for the ignorant may not see. Let the wise instruct the wise, for the ignorant may not see. This is very instructive, since already in the fourth millennia BC, the drama of knowledge that I mentioned is already fully stated. What the scribe is dramatizing is essentially this question. Who is this knowledge for, and who should have access to it? The answer is, naturally, not you lot. Writing and reading, and the information and power this gives access to, is for an elite who will jealously guard it as part of their technological, social, and political power. Just to show you what I mean when I say that this drama of knowledge is played out right through history, let's leap momentarily to the American South of the pre-war years, the antebellum years. Here, it was against the law to teach any black person, whether a slave or a free man, to read well into the mid-1800s. Punishments were savage, often resulting in its execution. The accounts we have of slaves teaching themselves to read with incredible ingenuity and tenacity, despite the penalties they faced, are some of the most visceral and moving stories in the history of reading. But let's resume our chronology by winding back now to the 4th century AD and one of the major figures of European culture, a decisive player in the drama of knowledge. I'm speaking of St. Augustine, who established through his intellectual and moral preeminence a dogma that was to have a profound effect on attitudes to knowledge in Europe for many centuries. The crucial thing that Augustine proposed was this, that, God, the, that the purposes of God were unknowable. That being so, we shouldn't be particularly bothered to know them. In fact, he expressed disdain for those who wished to know simply for the sake of knowing. We would know God through faith and not through reason. The effect of this was to usher in nearly a thousand years of European ignorance that isn't really broken until St. Thomas of Aquinas and subsequently the Renaissance. Because the consequence of this dogma is to turn us away from explanation and towards a blind obedience that rests on ignorance. To the remarkable Adelard of Bath, one of the great cross-cultural figures of the Middle Ages, Europe, as a result, was a place of brutish credulity Returning from seven years of investigation into Arab culture, bearing the stupendous treasure of a rediscovered Euclid, he reflected on England. I found the princes barbarous, the bishops bibulous, 
the judges bribable and patrons unreliable. Contrast this picture then with what's happening in Muslim societies after Muhammad, as explained in Jonathan Lyons' wonderful book, The House of Wisdom. The House of Wisdom was created by al-Mamun in Baghdad in the early, 18, in the early 800s. <clears throat> Here he assembled a huge library peopled by scholars determined to search out, interpret, apply and develop knowledge wherever it came from. Lyons shows how the seeds of this intellectual activity were already present in Arab religion and modes of worship. Muhammad had enjoyed his, enjoined his followers to seek for science even in China and one of the greatest achievements of his people was to construct a worldview where science and knowledge, far from being in opposition to religion, served and illuminated it. The result of this is that nearly five centuries before Descartes, Ibn Rushd, a philosopher based in Cordoba, gave us a defense and exposition of reason through his distinguished commentaries on Aristotle, which Michael Scott Frederick II's court philosopher translated and disseminated throughout the universities of the West in the early 1200s. Denial of cause implies denial of knowledge, Ibn Rushd wrote, and denial of knowledge implies nothing in this world can really be known. From this point of view, then, what Augustine gives us in relation to knowledge is a council of despair, where knowledge and most crucially understanding is circumscribed by prohibition and the threat of punishment. Umberto Eco's book, The Name of the Rose, turns on exactly this drama of knowledge. And there's a further consequence of Augustine's views, which feeds directly into educational practice. Because understanding is not important, and because individual interpretations of texts and information is basically a subversive act, then the educational system that develops in Europe is based on rote learning. In other words, we'll teach you how, but we won't teach you why. In this respect, it's interesting to note Augustine's observation on Ambrose of Milan. Augustine, intrigued and perhaps troubled by what he finds, writes, When Ambrose read, his eyes scanned the page and his heart sought out the meaning, but his voice was silent and his tongue was still. Ambrose was doing a most peculiar thing. He was reading silently. It was okay for Ambrose to seek out meaning. He was, after all, part of the church elite. But reading silently was, in most other contexts, a worrying, subversive act. It might give rise to ideas and stimulate personal interpretation, the first step on the road to heresy. We'll encounter this particular drama of knowledge again in the Protestant Revolution. In any case, the idea of rote learning is remarkably persistent in Western educational practice. It allows us con to connect Augustinian thought straight through to Victorian Britain, as described and satirized by, one might almost say flayed by, Charles Dickens in his novel Hard Times. Those of you familiar with this book will remember the figure of Gradgrind and the utilitarian philosophy he exemplifies. You will also remember the education he provides, which is primarily characterized by rote learning and punishment. And the question Dickens raise, raises in this powerful crusading novel is more or less the same that we started with. What is it that we mean by education, and who and what is it for? This is a central question, and one that was especially important to Victorian Britain for a variety of reasons, not least the purposes of industrialization, and the hierarchies of class and social order. 
The mass educational balance that had to be found was how to teach people the basic skills that would enable them to be employable and productive without becoming too clever. This is neatly exemplified by the rise of Taylorism as a social, educational and managerial practice predicated on the metaphor of the machine. Taylor thought the purpose of education was to turn out children, uh, children who were good little machines. Of the worker, and this is especially relevant to Glasgow, he wrote, one of the very first requirements for a man who is fit to handle pig iron as a regular occupation is that he shall be so stupid and so phlegmatic that he more nearly resembles in his mental makeup the ox than any other type. The man who is mentally alert and intelligent is for this reason entirely unsuited to what would for him be the grinding monotony of work of this character. Therefore, the workman who best is best suited to handling pig iron is unable to understand the real science of doing this class of work. And so here we are back with this central idea of rote learning. We will show you how, but we won't teach you why. And we're still dealing with this legacy today. As Sir Ken Robertson, one of the world's most form uh, foremost uh, educational theorists, notes, our essential model for uh, education is still Victorian. Many children go to school in Victorian buildings. They sit in large classes. They are taught through a modified, more enlightened version of rote. And they are the victims of a factory production model whose purpose is not so much to educate as to institutionalize as a preparation to entering the workforce as dutiful, obedient, and productive worker bees. Still today, the individual comes second to the perceived needs of a planned economy. Is this not just another iteration of Gradgrind's utilitarianism? But don't just take my word for it. Listen to Sir Ken yourself. There's a wonderful short video which I urge you to watch. Just Google RSA Animate and click on Changing Paradigms in Education to see the case much more eloquently and entertainingly made. As for the physical punishment side of things, such an important theme of Dickens' work and a defining characteristic of attitudes towards children in Victorian Britain, let us also remember that the Scottish educational system itself made abundant use of corporal punishment until very recently indeed. The Chamber's concise Scots Dictionary reassures us that from 1983, the TORS was used only rarely and in certain re regions. So thank heaven for small mercies. But this, of course, is not the whole story, because there is also the other side of this self-same coin, a parallel stream of thought, which I've already touched on in, for example, discussing the difference between Augustinian and Arab attitudes towards knowledge. We might characterize this stream of thought as Renaissance and Enlightenment. By the 13th century, through the work of such figures as Adelard of Bath and Michael Scott, there's a gradual, hard-won triumph of Thomist thinking over Augustian, uh, Augustinian worldview. In 1270, the church authorities are unable to enforce a ban on Aquinas' work and the intellectual freedom it speaks for. The genie, as it were, was truly out of the bottle. What this genie gives rise to through many social, religious, and political convolutions is the Protestant Revolution, a revolution which posits an entirely different personal and unmediated relationship between the individual and God and therefore knowledge. 
And so we come to another central figure of European culture, even if he is far less well-known, William Tyndale. Tyndale, who helped produce an English-language Bible by the 1530s, explained that he had done so because, I had perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scriptures were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. The process, order, and meaning of the text. This is surely one of the greatest democratic statements ever made in any culture. <clears throat> Naturally, Tyndale was punished for it. Uh, he was flayed alive, hung, drawn, and quartered, dying in agony. Calvin and Knox are, of course, also very important here. Knox set up Scotland's parish-based educational system and, uh, for the same reasons as Tyndale published the Bible in the vernacular. This made Scotland one of the first countries in the world to, to achieve more or less uh, mass literacy. And this, in turn, sets up Scotland for its own enlightenment later on. But Knox and his church still faced a dilemma, a further iteration of the drama of knowledge, Namely, how do you give access to knowledge but still control interpretation and the hierarchies of social order? The answer is that despite highly repressive measures, which include social and community sanctions and physical punishment and execution, it's impossible. The system of control falls apart and it's given its death blow by Gutenberg's invention of portable type. The authorities now have lost control both of the means of production and of the means of interpretation. Only a few years before Hume radically reorders and redefines our relationship to knowledge with his treatise, people are being hanged in Scotland for blasphemy. But once that genie is out of the bottle, it doesn't go back in again, even if, still today, dictatorships make every effort to bottle that genie. It is in this context that we should understand the famous poet Anna Akhmatova's comment on the Stalinist epoch, we live in a pre-Gutenberg age, she said. Nevertheless, in the competition between Stalin and Akhmatova and many other Soviet-era writers, it's the poet that eventually wins. So today we sit here as inheritors of these struggles, this drama of knowledge. We understand that freedom of access to, to education, information, and interpretation is the bedrock both of our own personal destinies and of our liberal democratic system. We have, through the revolutions of literacy, of the paperback book, of the public library, and the social and intellectual upheavals of the 1960s, arrived at a more enlightened place. But it isn't as enlightened as we think it is. We are still enacting this drama of knowledge. Let me show you what I mean by moving on now to look a bit more closely at the educational system in Scotland and the UK. I've already alluded to the legacy of Victorian thinking still being played out in our ideas about education and in the system itself. Today, these ideas are buttressed and maintained by an idea of the free market which is run completely out of control. In education policy, most especially in England, we still find punitive rhetoric and practice. This time only, it is directed at schools and teachers through the threat of school league tables, HMI inspections, and other sanctions that can be taken against underperforming schools. The rigid crudity of this approach takes no account of whether the educational system itself, the curriculum, uh, fits the child to the system 
uh, sorry, um, the rigid crudity of this approach takes no account of whether the educational system itself, uh, which fits the child to the system and not vice versa, is fit for purpose. Manifestly, our educational system is not fit for purpose. And yet, despite overwhelming evidence of this and the huge success of other models, which I'll come on to in a minute, we think the solution is to exert a terribly confused mishmash of measures. On one hand, freedom of choice. On the other, a punitive controlling attitude towards performance. But let me demonstrate what I mean with reference to Scotland. According to Maggie Allen, chair of Scotland's now defunct Curriculum Review Board, 20% of Scottish children leave the educational system with no qualifications. They're basically illiterate. That's 10,000 children a year. Can we describe this as a successful education system? And what happens to these children? As we see, they wander straight into punishment. 70% of all prisoners in Scotland, and indeed throughout the UK, are functionally illiterate. So education and punishment are, in this sense, still entwined. There's literally a production line that leads from educational failure to prison and punishment. Now do the maths. It costs around £40,000 a year to keep one person in prison. And there are around about 8,500 permanent prison population in Scotland. The cost of this failure to educate are astronomical. It's around about £340 million a year even before we have factored in the costs of crime, policing, and the courts. There are many other failures, too. For example, 50% of Scottish students aged 15 think that reading is a complete waste of time, and a further 25% only read when they absolutely have to. We have to ask, then, have we really educated these 15-year-olds? And how, if they have these attitudes, will they continue to learn throughout their lives, as we, who are readers, do? Let's now look at the education system in Finland, a country of comparative size to Scotland. For the last two decades, according to the OECD, Finland has operated the top performing educational system in the world. How do they do it? Firstly, they turn their back on the free market-inspired dogma which pairs the idea of choice with rigid command and control practices as exemplified by relentless testing, ridiculous ideas about common levels of pupil attainment, league tables, constant reporting, and intimidating school inspections. Here they operate a revolutionary concept in education. It's called trust in teachers. And the question of school choice is irrelevant in Finland too, because they have trumped that with the idea of equity. All schools are equally as good. And those that need the most help get the investments they need so parents don't have to worry about what catchment they're in. In addition to this, teachers spend less time teaching than they do here. Students have a full hour less of teaching per day in Finland than they do in Scotland. So less really is more. Secondly, they operate within a culture where everybody ascribes to a common set of social values. This is in great contrast to Britain, where common social values have been destroyed by a free market ideology which has the effect of atomizing society, uniting us only in competition and promoting gross inequality. We're the most unequal society in Europe. 10% of us owns 80% of all our wealth. The result is that Finnish people prize social worth. After medicine and law, being a primary school teacher is the next most desirable occupation. 
and only the very best and brightest manage to become teachers. Teaching standards are therefore very high. Thirdly, in Finland and indeed throughout Scandinavia, childhood is privileged and prized. Again, this is in stark contrast with Britain, where we're terribly confused about what the experience of childhood should be. There's something grossly obscene about the way in which we sentimentalize childhood on one hand, while at the same time relentlessly sexualizing and commercializing it. In Scandinavia, it's illegal to advertise to children. And there are many other ways in which real respect for childhood plays through. As mentioned before, the educational system in those countries is child-centered. Standardization is eschewed in, in favor of personalization. Every child has a bespoke learning plan and nearly half of all children get extra help that is specifically relevant to them. But the most important educational factor that children in Finland uh, is that uh, children in Finland don't start school until they're seven years old. Contrast this to Scotland where we attempt to teach children as young as four how to read, write and count. This is hugely counterproductive and I would argue punitive in a number of ways. Sending a four or five year old child into school is in itself punitive. Starting school is the beginning of the end of childhood and children this young simply aren't ready for it socially, emotionally or indeed in terms of their brain development. There's a lot of scientific and psychological evidence now which proves this case. Anyone wishing to know more should read Marianne Wolfe's Proust and the Squid, which assembles a lot of this research. So teaching a child of four or five years old to read, write and count is punitive in the sense that neurologically they just aren't ready for it. Consequently, what should be a journey of discovery which opens the world to the child becomes an ordeal which lasts for more than two years, damages confidence, and puts the child off learning. If you really want to know why 75% of Scottish 15-year-olds don't like or see the value of reading, the explanation is right here in this early experience. Let's conclude now by saying a few words about play and the value of play. Beginning formal education at the age of four or five is predicated on a pedagogy which sees no value in play whatsoever. Play is only seen as something that you do when you're not being subjected to the discipline of learning. Play is free time, a blank space. And yet there's an absolutely vast and incontrovertible body of evidence which demonstrates exactly the opposite, namely that play is central to learning, socialization, brain development, creativity, discovery, confidence, and originality, all those values we pay lip service to in our faux liberal democratic way. In fact, play is involved in a lot of what we do every day, whether child or adult, since it is centrally involved in the process of solving problems, constructing things, and manipulating concepts. In putting together this lecture, I was at play. I had a bunch of concepts and information and an overall thesis, and I needed to fit them together into some sort of coherent narrative. So I played around with those elements and eventually settled on this structure. You will all have had the same kind of experience. So we need to reclaim this concept of play, to give it back its value, and to confer this very human gift back on our children and on ourselves. We're confused about its value educationally and socially for two reasons. Firstly, we live in a society where the idea of the market has obliterated the value of any other concept. So we don't quite know what to do with something that does not give us an immediately quantifiable result and which cannot easily be commodified and valued. 
added to which the idea is that we need to get these children through school disciplined by formal learning as efficiently as possible so that we have obedient worker bees for our economy. And secondly, because, as I hope I've been able to describe, we're the inheritors of a conflicted idea of knowledge and learning, which, whether we are talking about it in its Catholic or Protestant manifestations, Augustine, Knox, is predicated on an inherently mistrustful view of human nature and therefore the need for strong measures of social control. We trivialise and stigmatise play as a set of activities that will lead to trouble, sin and mischief. Of course it will, because as soon as we start to play, we cannot anticipate or control the outcomes. We thus have an educational system which is driven by a damaging paradox and a terrible hypocrisy. All our rhetoric is about creativity and imagination. All our actions are about crushing these at source by stigmatising play, the wellspring of our inventiveness as a species. Let me give you just a very quick example. Attention deficit disorder. What do we do with these children? Well, essentially, instead of paying proper attention to what the problem is with their behaviour, we dose them with drugs. We discipline them. We exclude them from school. Or we put them in special schools. And yet... All of the scientific evidence conducted with these children, um, both in terms of what's going on in their brains and psychologically, demonstrates that it's precisely these children who have access to the highest levels of creativity. So, our ideas about knowledge remain inseparable from ideas about discipline, prohibition and the threat of punishment. A couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to be able to attend a lecture at the Scottish Parliament by Dr. Parsi Salbai, one of the architects of Finland's educational system. I asked him a simple question, and I got a simple reply. Why do your children only start school at seven years of age? I inquired. Because we believe in play, he said. And it's time we did the same. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Mark. Okay, um, a break for about 10 minutes while you can uh, replenish tea and coffee. Just come up to the counter. For those of you who arrived late, there's uh, there's some croissant, cheese, scones, butter, things like that. If you haven't had anything to eat for lunch, you're welcome to come up. Um, And we'll reconvene again uh, at quarter two. Okay, so please be back at your tables for quarter two, two. Thank you very much.